Do you suffer from chronic pain? If you've tried a lot of different treatments with no real results, your pain may have an emotional root. I spoke with Kent Bassett, one of the directors of the documentary This Might Hurt, as well as Dr. Howard Chubiner to discuss their film that addresses the fact that sometimes pain can have emotional causes. Learn more in this episode about how you can take steps to heal and eliminate pain. The Mental Health and Wealth Show, the Mental Health and Wealth Show, the Mental Health and Wealth Show. I have a secret. I'm super excited to share something with you. First of all, May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and I'm super excited to share with you that we created a mental health and wealth calendar with daily strategies with things that you can do that are simple and easy to take care of your mental health and wealth. Go grab that at mentalhealthandwealth.com. And I'm super excited to announce that we are having our very first mental health and wealth summit. So if you've ever thought that money stresses me out and makes me anxious, or I spend money to make myself feel better, but then end up feeling worse, or my mental health makes it tough to manage my money, then you are not alone. And this summit is for you. We're going to have sessions on money mindset, spending triggers, breath work, removing mindset blocks, and you can even ask a CFP your financial questions. We have limited sliding scale tickets as well as general admission and mental health and wealth supporter tickets. So if you want to join us, I would love to have you there and you can grab your ticket at mentalhealthandwealth.com forward slash summit. Thank you so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. This is host Melanie Locker. And first of all, I want to acknowledge that you are brave and amazing for being here. Getting ready to listen to a show about mental health and money is not easy, and I know you are ready for these amazing conversations. But before you listen, I want to let you know that all of my content is based on my own personal experience with mental health and money, as well as the experiences and expertise of my guests. I'm not a mental health professional or a financial professional, so content should not be considered professional, medical, or financial advice. As a trigger warning, please note that content on the show may include sensitive topics around mental health and suicide. So if you're currently in distress, please get in touch with a professional by texting HOME to 741-741. Thank you so much and enjoy the show. This is Melanie Lockhart, host of the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Today, I'm interviewing Kent Bassett and Howard Schubiner of the film This Might Hurt, which I was lucky enough to screen just a few weeks ago. Kent Bassett is an Emmy-nominated editor and director from Arizona, and much of his drive to make This Might Hurt came from his own struggle with pain as a 22-year-old. Unable to type or even turn a doorknob, he was forced to drop out of college. Although he saw several doctors and tried physical therapy, strength training, and was on put on opioids, his pain grew steadily worse. It wasn't until he had an insight into the role of the brain in triggering real physical pain that he was able to completely recover. I'm also chatting with Howard Schubiner, who is a doctor and the director of the Mind Body Medicine Program at Ascension Providence Hospital in Southfield, Michigan, and also a clinical professor at the Michigan State University. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Yes, I'm super excited to chat with you guys. As I mentioned earlier, I watched the film, This Might Hurt, a few weeks ago, and it moved me to tears and was such a beautiful film because I feel like this is something that is not talked about. And obviously, 
on the Mental Health and Wealth Show. We're all about breaking taboos, talking about things that no one's really talking about, and also providing resources for people for these things that we're experiencing that's causing us mental health and physical health pain. And so, Kent, I wanted to start with you. I know you have worked on this film. This is a passion project of yours. I'd love to know what compelled you to make This Might Hurt and what is your hope in sharing it? Yeah, thank you. Um, so I, you know, had this experience of debilitating pain in my early 20s and the process of recovering from it was so surprising. You know, I had I had, had to drop out of college. I was like basically depressed living with my mom, you know, worried I might never get better from pain because I'd seen all these different doctors and none of them quite knew how to help me. And I read this book by Dr. John Sarno called The Mind-Body Prescription. And it, just a light bulb went off in my head and I kind of couldn't believe that the answer in a way could be so simple, you know, that it, it had never made sense to me that I had somehow wrecked my body at such a young age and that I was going to have this debilitating pain forever. And yet that's what it seemed to be. These All these doctors who were confused by it seemed to be implying, like, we don't know how to help you. Maybe you'll be with this pain forever. And some of them said that. They said, oh, yeah, sometimes it lasts several years. Sometimes, you know, sometimes people get better. We don't quite know why. And I was like, I need answers. And this, this book and Dr. John Sarno gave clear answers. And he explains how you know, the mind because of emotions or because of fear, because of other factors can create real physical pain. And it just really resonated with me. You know, I think I had reached rock bottom at that point. I had tried every other avenue in Western medicine that I knew of. And, and I got better really rapidly. It was like the next day I was like, you know, the pain in my arm dissipated. And then it moved around my body. I got chest pain. I got head pain. And and that was a really eye-opening experience, too, that you realize there's this mechanism that, for whatever reason, needs to project pain out somewhere in the body. And it moves around arbitrarily if you start to relate to it differently. Um, yeah, and so it wasn't until about a decade later that I thought, you know, that was so compelling. That was one of the most interesting, fascinating moments of my life. And what would it be like to try to see what it was like for other people going through that treatment? I talked to John Sarno, and he recommended a few people. And eventually I got led to Howard Schubiner, who's on this podcast with us. And he really quickly just sort of was like, yeah, yeah, we could try to make a movie together. He was really interested in it. And we kept talking over the next few months. And then finally, one day I flew out and we filmed a four week class where Howard does intake and, you know, initial interviews with nine different patients. And then he works with them in a seminar format over four weeks. And that's that's the primary material that the film was made of, is, is them sort of grappling with these ideas, trying to figure out if this pain that for many of them, they've had five, 10, 20 years of pain could really be caused by their mind. Could it really be healed by reckoning with, you know, stress from their lives, way that fear causes pain um, and that kind of thing. So, yeah. You know, Kent, uh, this is Howard uh, Schubiner here. So I don't remember it that way. I remember you saying we should make a movie, and I'm saying, are you crazy? <laughs> You're like, I do remember. I really want to be a part of this? <laughs> <laughs> Not me. It wasn't me so much. It was, are, are my patients going to be interested and willing to open their lives, their personal and deep lives, to a documentary film? That's what I thought was not going to happen. And I remember Kent saying, well, 
why don't you call them and ask them? Because I had a group getting ready to go. So we had the people who were already just by the timing of it. And so I called them and they all said yes. So that's what happened. <laughs> I <laughs> yeah, love and that. It, and speaking in, in terms of thinking about the money, you know, most documentary films that you see on Netflix or Amazon or whatever, the streaming services, these are funded films. They cost about a million or two million dollars to make. And in this case, this was just little old me. I work as a film editor in television. And I just, with my own money, I took, I took a month off from my job and just flew out to Detroit and hired people off Craigslist to film. And it took many years of, you know, raising a little bit of money here and there. And my partner, Marion Cunningham, who directed the film with me, we really struggled financially to make this film, but we felt so compelled to try to bring these stories to life because we thought it really could help people. Yeah, and I think you've done such a great job with the film. And I love to hear a little bit more of the backstory of, you know, that this is your passion project. This is something you've built from the ground up and hiring Craigslist locals to help you out. And yeah, I think Howard brought up a great point. You know, when you're doing this kind of deep healing work, it's really important. But then what is at stake when you're sharing these stories and how can we help others, but also not put these people in a more vulnerable situation when they're trying to heal. But I think you did such a fantastic job of keeping the integrity of, you know, the participants in the film and then showing their journey in an honest and compelling way. And so I appreciate you sharing your story of your, your pain at age 22. I can't imagine dealing with such chronic pain at a young age when you feel like you have your whole life ahead of you. And as we saw in the film, it's so clear when people have been dealing with this for five, 10, 20 years, and it feels like this is just my life now. And, you know, this can lead to so many different things like painkiller addiction, alcohol abuse, drug abuse, just because people are trying to manage their pain. And so I'd love to hear from you both. Maybe we'll start with Howard. What is the relationship between emotional trauma and chronic pain? Yeah, it's a great question. It turns out that our brain is designed or devised or evolved or however it came to be the way it is to view physical pain and emotional pain in basically the same way. And it's really shocking when you think about that. But, you know, there's several studies on this. And when you give someone a physical pain and you scan their brain using fMRI, and then you give them an emotional pain and you scan their brain, you find the same thing the pathways, the circuits in the brain are basically the same because it's our brain's job to protect us and alert us if there's a problem. And physical pain is a protection. People who are born without the ability to feel physical pain often die at a young age. It's that important. But it's not your finger when you cut your finger that's actually causing pain. It's actually the brain. And that's the emerging neuroscience of pain in the brain. And so it turns out that our brain decides when to turn on pain or not. And an injury can cause the brain to turn on pain, but not all injuries actually turn, cause the brain to turn on pain. The brain has to decide that. And that is a shocking way of thinking about it. And emotional injury, especially emotional injuries that pile up over time, especially emotional injuries that start in childhood, that pile up over time and accumulate at some points in people's lives, the danger signal in their brain just gets tripped, kind of like a smoke alarm does. 
and their brain can then activate a message. But our brains don't speak English to us. <laughs> they speak pain or people might get anxious when their danger signal is going off or depressed or fatigued, or maybe they can't sleep, or maybe they get hand pain as Kent did, or maybe they get neck pain as I have many times in my life, or maybe they get stomach pain or back pain, or a whole variety of messages that our brain is capable of creating in the absence of actual structural injury. And so to understand that goes against what everyone knows. And that's the revolutionary part of, of what we're doing. Yeah. And that's why I'm so excited to chat with you both about this, because I think it is an emerging science. And what you mentioned about how intricately linked physical pain and emotional trauma are, I was thinking as you were talking, you know, anyone who's experienced heartbreak, which is probably everyone, but imagine that first time experiencing heartbreak, like you feel it on your heart. It can feel like you're having a heart attack. Same thing with anxiety. You know, you can sometimes people confuse anxiety attacks with heart attacks. It's a very physical manifestation of something that you are processing with your emotions and your brain. And so I think given those analogies with heartbreak and anxiety, it's it's clear that this is possible, that physical pain can be rooted in unprocessed emotions and trauma. And actually, just a few weeks ago, I heard someone say that emotion is energy in motion. And I thought that was so beautiful after seeing your film because I thought, ah, oh, this is so important to get these feelings that we have kind of stuck festering in our body out in a healthy way. So for example, I go boxing and it's been completely revolutionary for me to get pent up anger and resentment out of my body and just, you know, get that feeling out. And so I'm so curious, like, what are some ways that people can cope and deal with these pent up emotions to help mitigate physical pain? I think the key is to recognize that we are emotional beings, to recognize that we have emotions and emotions aren't bad. They're not dangerous. There's no such thing as negative emotions as some people have. Emotions are there to, to help us and protect us and alert us. So what happens is a lot of times is that people will start to feel anxious or depressed or in pain or fatigued, and they don't know why. But if they can stop and think, gee, what's going on? You know, I have pain in my stomach. You know, maybe I need a stomach doctor. Fine, that's certainly possible. But maybe I need to check in with myself and my life and see what's going on. What am I feeling? And when people do that, often they can begin to make those connections and see the links. I started getting upper back and neck pain at the time my mom was dying. I didn't think it was bothering me. I mean, I love my mom. Okay, it wasn't that. <laughs> but I wasn't, I, I wasn't in a deep depression, you know, but, it, but I think underneath, you know, subconsciously, I was feeling a lot of turmoil that just came out, so to speak, in my body. So I think the first step is really to begin to recognize it and think about it. But again, it's counterintuitive. Ken, when, you, when your hands started hurting, was your first thought, gee, I'm wondering what emotions I'm feeling? <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> no, although I've become the person nowadays who like, after soaking in these ideas for years, I now like my first thought when I have a pain is like, is this my brain? My brain's probably doing this. I'm like <laughs> the opposite. <laughs> 
Well, it often is actually. And this is way more common than people realize, way more common. 30, 40, roughly percent of people who come to see a doctor do not have a structural problem for which they're, you know, for which their symptoms are attributable to. The vast majority of people with chronic pain do not have a structural injury, even though their MRIs may be abnormal in their back, their doctors may have been telling them they have this or that, but if you look closely enough, this is incredibly common. So to think about it, to just be open, you know, to have the openness of mind to say, as Kent was just saying, like, you know, maybe I hurt my arm or maybe it's my brain. Let's investigate. That is the most important thing that people can do. Yeah, I think it's really important that we use emotions as signals. And I love that you brought up the fact that there are no negative emotions. And especially with this kind of toxic positivity going around where it's like, we have to feel, you know, happy and okay. And all these kind of things when it's like, we're entitled to experience anxiety and depression and grief and all of these things. And we don't need to necessarily label them as negative. They are just signs telling us that something is wrong or something needs attention in our body or our life. And I think that's so amazing and interesting that you mentioned that for at least 40 to 50% of people that have chronic pain do not have a structural problem. So are you saying that people in general tend to assume there must be kind of structural problems or things that are wrong with certain body parts that's causing the pain, but in further investigation, there's really nothing wrong there. And so they might seem like, oh, well, then what is it? I don't know. They keep going to doctor and doctor and doctor with no diagnoses. But it seems like this emotion causing physical pain isn't widely accepted in the medical community. Is is that what I'm hearing? Correct. It's actually the 30, 40% is 30, 40% of people who go see a doctor Mm. do not have a structural problem. If you take the people who have chronic pain, the actual number is estimated to be 80 to 90% don't have a structural cause of that pain. And that is shocking. And yes, the medical profession is not recognizing that. It's not part of our training. Uh, In fact, our training is opposite to that. People are trained that all back pain is due to a structural problem when actually the majority is not. I mean, so there's a conflict. There's a conflict of ideas and the language that we use, you know, we, we give names to things that are scary. And Kent alluded to it a little bit ago, but what we find is that the things that drive pain to become chronic, number one, it's potentially emotions and ongoing stress. But number two, it's the fear of the pain, the focus on the pain, the worry about the pain. And that actually drives pain to become worse in a vicious cycle. We call it the pain, fear, pain cycle. And so what happens that medical profession can make people worse by giving them the idea that they're really sick. You know, doctors will tell people your back looks like a car crash, you know, because their MRIs <laughs> abnormal. Well, it turns out all people's MRIs are abnormal. 50% of 30-year-olds have abnormal MRIs who have no pain at all. And MRIs increasingly are abnormal with age, just like hair increasingly gets gray with age without, in the absence of a disease, it's just normal aging. 
So when doctors tell people their back's like an 80-year-old or they tell people that they have fibromyalgia and it's incurable, or they tell people that they'll just have to live with their chronic headaches because there's nothing we can do to make the pain go away, that actually makes people worse. Oh, I can imagine. And Kent, I would love to hear your experience dealing with more traditional doctors before you discovered this methodology. And then, Howard, I'd love to hear from you kind of why the medical establishment does not really recognize the mind-body connection. So let's start with you, Kent. Yeah, and it, it touches on why I felt so motivated to make this film. You know, I, I think I saw very well-intentioned doctors, but they led me very far astray from getting better. So I saw a doctor, I was at Swarthmore College at the time, and they have like free medical care. And I saw one of the doctors there and they were like, oh yeah, you have tendonitis. Um, you probably shouldn't type that much. You may never really be able to type again, or you'll just have to limit the time you spend typing. And I was like, what? Like, you know, I might want to have a job where I write, you know, but I can't type anymore. And then I saw a different doctor at the same place and they put me on opioids, which we now know are extremely dangerous for people with chronic pain. And the opioids did nothing for my pain. They didn't help. And I don't think the doctor followed up with me to check on that. Um, speaking of financial barriers, I wasn't able to see a physical therapist because I had California health insurance that didn't translate to Pennsylvania where I was. So I just didn't do physical therapy until much later. It turns out physical therapy didn't help me either because the, in a sense, physical therapy, while it can be useful, it focuses you on the idea that there's something structurally wrong with, in my case, the arms. And there wasn't anything wrong with my arms. That was just sort of a, an assumption I had because that's where the pain was. And then another doctor told me I needed to just eat more. He was like, you just need to eat more. <laughs> I was like, that can't, possibly, that can't possibly be, you know, but my mom was like, you have to eat more. He said to eat more. <laughs> so I we like went and bought a cheesecake. I don't, it was ridiculous. You know? I, I've always been thin, you know, I'm just, that's my body type and that the doctor just latched onto that. And then another doctor was, you know, was, I saw one doctor in New York City who like invented new arm surgeries. He was a really, you know, acclaimed specialist. And he said, I see people like you all the time. We don't know what you have. Lots of people from the Juilliard School of Music see me every other week and I can't help them. And it doesn't, what you have doesn't fit into a diagnostic box. Don't let anyone do surgery on your arm. And that was upsetting, but ultimately useful because it said, it said okay, maybe there's nothing left for me in Western medicine. I'm going to go check out. And I ended up reading Andrew Weil's book, Spontaneous Healing. And he mentions Dr. Sarno's ability to heal a person he knew with and that's, that's sort of what led me to what ended up completely resolving all of my pain. But yeah, just so much ignorance in the medical field about these kinds of symptoms. No one once said, what's going on in your life? What kinds of stresses do you have? No one once said it's possible that your brain or your mind could be exacerbating or creating these symptoms. No, none of the doctors or physical therapists knew about these ideas. So I think that's starting to change. This happened in 2004. I think there's more openness to this, but there's still a shocking amount of ignorance um, and we have a long way to go. And that's why we made the film because what we know is that stories can change people. You know, you see a story, you see somebody like the people in our film who have debilitating pain for decades, you see them recover, they get better. And then you start to say, hmm, what's going on here? Like, 
why did none of these other treatments work? But this treatment does work, you know, for multiple people who've been suffering for so long. And anyway, that did that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was fantastic. And, you know, I loved in the film, you know, seeing some of the characters. There was one in particular who was bedridden and in so much pain. And then after the treatment started going back to work again, and it was just such a beautiful thing to see, you know, someone getting their life back and their productivity back. And I'm curious, Howard, from your point of view, like, why is it that the medical community seems so hesitant to acknowledge the mind-body connection? And I'm also curious how you continue to be a trailblazer within this system. Yeah. Um, well, it's a good thing Canada's young because, uh, you know, it's, what do you say, 2004, this is 17 years now. <laughs> Has it really changed that much? I mean, the doctors <laughs> really, really understand this now? Some, you know, we're, we're working at it, you know, little by little. But there's a lot of barriers. You know, one barrier is that doctors are afraid to talk to patients about the mind or the brain because it seems outside their scope. They don't know how to do it. They don't know what to say. And then the patients get the wrong idea that the, the doctor's saying it's all in your head mm. and that you're crazy, it's your fault. And that's the last thing that we want to do. But that's what people hear frequently. So a doctor may try to do that a few times, but then they get shut down by patients and then they'll stop doing it because they're afraid they're not validating them. And so we, we want to validate people's experience because the pain is real. It's not imaginary. It's not fake. But doctors don't have training in how to talk about this. They don't have training in how to diagnose these conditions. And we're working on doing tons of trainings, you know, to try to make that change. But the bottom line is that neuroscience advances in the last 10 or 20 years have not filtered into medicine. It's a different field. Neuroscience are neuroscientists. You know, they're not physicians by and large. And so that knowledge base hasn't really filtered. And, and finally, I want to say that this has absolutely nothing to do with money. Zero. Mm -hmm. Joking. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me more. Tell me more. <laughs> it has everything to do with money. <laughs> everything has to do with money. And to digress maybe for a moment, the U.S. healthcare system I don't know if you may, may or may not realize this, but it's messed up. Yeah. It's messed up financially in as many ways, but it's definitely messed up financially. There's tremendous incentive in the healthcare system to do more surgeries, more procedures, more injections, more testing. There's less incentive or disincentivized possibly to talk to people, to spend time with people, to talk about their lives, to talk about their feelings. Who's going to pay for that? So there's a lot of built-in incentives and disincentives that really directly are applicable to this kind of work and turning this ship around. You know, hospitals make money when they do more procedures. And frankly, there are a lot of back procedures, injections and surgeries that have not been shown to be effective in randomized controlled trials. Wow. There's never been... There's never been a study that shows that surgery, back fusion surgery for back pain is effective for back surgery as compared to exercise or PT or, or, or watching. There's no, zero study to show that, but yet we're spending $20 billion a year on back surgery. The studies on back injections show that in randomized controlled fashion, injections for back pain 
are no more effective than placebo injections for back pain. Interesting. This is shocking. There's another 10 to $20 billion spent on injections every year in this country for back pain. So there's a lot of financial things involved, but the research and the research we're doing is beginning to show that, uh, you know, what do they say? My friend Dick Schwartz goes, T-S-W. This stuff works. <laughs> Although he uses different language. <laughs> I love but it. in any case, <laughs> we're, we're accumulating the data to show that this method does work. It is effective for chronic pain, more effective than other treatments. And uh, so we're hopeful that over time this will change. I wanted to add one thing about in terms of the research. One of the things that I feel like I really lucked out when I was trying to pick someone to be in this film about chronic pain, which is that Howard is both really good at treating patients on a one-to-one -one conversation, which you see like with a caring, compassionate um, understanding of what they're going through and giving them solutions. But then also he's leading the research on this new treatment for chronic pain. So it's the term he gives it is E-A-E-T. And Howard and his colleagues published the first major randomized controlled trial showing that this other way of treating chronic pain is really effective. And the, after that, it was recommended by the NIH and, and the U.S. government to combat the opioid epidemic. So what we captured in the film was, the, was this treatment that was a little bit fringe. Dr. Sarno was not broadly accepted by the medical establishment. Now it has the data and the science to be called evidence-based medicine and to be recommended by the U.S. government. Even though it's been officially recommended, it's still not widely recognized or practiced, which is why podcasts like this are so important. We're trying to get the word out about it. That's why we think the film is so important. But I just wanted to mention that. Yeah, that's super important. And, you know, it sounds like the medical industry makes a lot of money kind of just treating people or, you know, keeping people sick in a way and not really looking at the root causes of certain things. And I've been very interested in neuroplasticity and also the mind gut connection most recently. You know, I know there's a whole second enteric nervous system in our gut that acts as a second brain. And it just is so clear to me, this mind body connection and it's so interesting that this doesn't seem to have transferred over yet to the wider medical community, especially as it relates to physicians who are treating people. And, you know, it seems like we would want to get to the root causes of pain and suffering and get people healthy and, and you know, healing most of all. And so I really appreciate the work that you guys are doing and kind of shifting the landscape from kind of this sick model to this healing model. And so for people that haven't seen the film, I'm curious, what is the core methodology of healing emotional trauma to mitigate physical pain? I know you guys showed some of it in the film, which was super fascinating, but for people that haven't seen it yet, you know, what can they look forward to or, or what should they expect as it relates to the healing component? We have a, uh, a process that's complete, I would say, or as complete as we can make it at this point in time. And it starts with an accurate assessment. And so you see in the film me uh, working with people, taking their medical histories, being very detailed, examining them, making sure they don't have a structural problem. Because we don't want to call a mind-body problem, uh, we don't want to misdiagnose people and say they have a mind-body problem when in fact they need medical treatment. They have cancer, autoimmune disease, or, or some fracture or tumor or 
or whatever, or infections. So that's the first step is making an accurate diagnosis, ruling out structural disorders. And then it's educating people about this mind-body connection and understanding all the science behind it so that people can begin to free themselves with some of the fear that they're damaged, that they're crippled, that they're broken. Then the third step is to start to free their mind, the techniques of what we're now calling pain reprocessing therapy to reduce the fear of the pain and help them to separate from it and help them to gradually get back to their lives and do things and move. And you see that in the film as well. And then the fourth step is what Kent mentioned was the EAET, which is the Emotional Awareness and Expression Therapy, which we developed, Mark Lumley and I, as an offshoot of um, the work Alan Abbas, one of my colleagues, our colleagues does in Halifax. And uh, this is where you get to the emotional issues and you help people recognize the links between emotions and pain. And you help them to uncover and identify some of the emotions that may have been held in from currently or back to their childhood or from whenever and allowing healthy experience of emotions, healthy expression of anger, healthy expression of sadness, healthy movement through anger and sadness to absolve guilt and move toward compassion and caring, self-care and forgiveness as much as possible. And when people do that, the danger signal in their brain starts to turn off as they begin to feel safe in their body, safe in their environment, safe with their past even. And then sometimes the, the final thing is sometimes people need to make some changes in their life. Maybe they need to change a relationship, a toxic relationship. Maybe they need to change a toxic job. Maybe they need to, you know, do things that they had avoided doing. Maybe they need to find joy. You know, so there's a lot of issues, obviously, that can hold people back. But when you put all that together, you can have really a powerful program for transformation. I'm curious, do you ever find that some of the people that you work with feel like they want to hold on to the pain because they're scared to kind of process emotions that are difficult and they're fearful of getting to the other side. Does that make sense? There's a lot of fear. Fear is what holds everything back. Fear of the pain, fear of the emotions, fear of making changes in your life, fear of what other people will think of you, fear of not being good enough. All those fears weigh heavily on us in so many ways and so many variations. And so if we can help people provide a safe space, they can begin to approach those fears little by little and see that maybe they can face their fears. And maybe it's not, the world isn't gonna end if they say, no, I can't, you know, I can't do one more volunteer activity. You know, the world is not gonna end if they allow themselves to recognize that, yes, I'm angry about something that happened. And so I think that most people will be able to approach this, not everybody, but most people will be able to approach parts of this if, they, if it's done in a loving way, a caring way, and a gradual way. Kent, what was your experience kind of processing these emotions and getting to healing? Right, yeah. So I had, um, there's maybe like 10% of the people who encounter these ideas looking for a chronic pain solution get what they call a book cure, or where just the idea themselves is curative. 
And I was really fortunate in that respect. So I, I mean, I, once I, I was like, okay, I'm going to use the power of my mind and overcome my pain. And I just did it in a day. <laughs> That's yeah. not the case for most people. It's usually not that simple. Of course, then the pain moved around my body. And then I ended up being like, okay, I think this, this is something I love. And I think this is what makes the film relevant for everyone, not just people who suffer from chronic pain is that pain in a way is a is a fascinating window into the mind body process that we all deal with all the time that has so much richness and texture that we're often not aware of and so i was basically like i want to use this as an opportunity to understand myself better my mind body system better to cultivate wisdom and so i what sarno recommends is just um journaling you know writing down a list of uh, and and howard also recommends this in his book on learn your pain is sort of like a process of sort of reckoning with your emotional past, all these conflicts you've had that you've often sort of shuffled and <laughs> swept under the rug or been like, I don't want, want to think about that or deal with that. You know, like I had been through a divorce that I, or my, sorry, my parents had been divorced when I was young. It was a bitter divorce and I had never cried about it or ever like experienced, or at least that I remember the processing that emotion. So I did some of that and so on. Much later, I ended up doing a lot of therapy which I think just sort of helped me with anxiety. You could say like anxiety is often, a, there's a physical manifestation of anxiety. Sometimes it's as bad as chronic pain, but other times it's just sort of this buzzing energy that can get in the way of things. And so I found that going through therapy with an emotion-focused therapist was really critical to sort of getting a handle on my, on my anxiety um, and understanding my anxiety and holding my anxiety differently rather than sort of trying to run away from it. And most people with what you might call mind-body chronic pain, I think often, even if they're able to make their pain go away, it's really useful to have someone they can talk to about emotions and anxiety for more longer-term healing because they often just have like elevated amounts of anxiety. I think all people struggle with anxiety. And so that's, anyway, that's one of the things that we're hopeful this film will reach people. Of course, 80% of people will at some point deal with chronic pain which is a shocking number of people already. But even the 100% of people that deal with anxiety, <laughs> I think can benefit from the ideas about how the mind relates to the body, how stress manifests in the body for all of us. Great. So I'm curious, what are some actionable steps that people can take who they might be experiencing chronic pain or anxiety to help process some of these emotions? So you mentioned journaling, you mentioned therapy, um, mentioned exercise. Like oh. I said, I'm a fan of boxing. Meditation. Yeah, meditation. Yeah, meditation. And Howard covers that in his book as well. And and Howard's been instrumental in bringing meditation into like this sort of concerted approach to dealing with pain differently. You know, there's a lot of different ways you can relate to the pain. And I think mindfulness, um, sort of allowing the pain to be there, but not running to fearful thoughts about the pain or even just recognizing like, oh, fearful thoughts. Like being able to take a step back is really important. And he teaches mindfulness, you know, in the film to the patients that we see going through that. And for some people, that's a really critical tool. Most people will latch onto one or another thing. And so, you know, if the emotional processing isn't your thing or the journaling isn't your thing, maybe mindfulness will really speak to you. Or maybe just like ignoring your pain and getting back to all your activities and, you know, really just reminding yourself repeatedly there's nothing physically wrong with my body despite the pain you know sometimes for people that's their thing is just sort of like moving on with their life and not thinking about it anyway so the everyone kind of relates to a different different part of the process yeah exactly uh it's completely true 
And uh, what really helps one person might be slightly different than the next person. But I will say that it's a little bit, I don't want to use the word dangerous, but I'm going to. <laughs> it's a little bit dangerous to say, to focus too much on the technique and not enough on the assessment and the understanding. And I, as Kent mentioned, I've been a mindfulness teacher for 20 years now. Everyone should learn mindfulness. But when you look at the research on mindfulness for chronic pain, it is not impressive. And why is that? Well, our view is that mindfulness is an incredibly useful thing to do. But if you're being mindful of pain, but you still have the old understanding that your pain is due to your body being broken, you're setting a ceiling for yourself inadvertently. And so you can't be liberated to think of your pain as a thought, which is a very liberating thing, which you can do with thoughts. And everyone who's done mindfulness knows that. But when you put the pain in the category of a thought, because you've read about it, you've researched it, you've been assessed, you've looked for all the, all the clues that tell you that it's not a structural problem, and then you do mindfulness, now the efficacy is vastly increased. And so the linkage of this whole understanding, putting the whole, putting the whole part together of the assessment and the education of, as you were talking about, melanie neuroplasticity and understanding how the brain works and understanding that our body is a reflection of our brain and then using the different techniques of the journaling, of the mindfulness, of the emotional expression, of the getting back to your life, all those things together are what really changes the neural circuits in the brain to make people feel safe as opposed to in fear, living in fear versus living in safety. That's the key factor that we're always coming back to when you think about this overall concept. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I think that's such a beautiful thing to kind of really look at is that we need to focus on the actual healing and the processing of emotions and not just the modality in which we do that. And so in the film, we watched one of the characters, you know, deal with emotional pain and they were getting better. And then they kind of had, for lack of a better word, a relapse and was experiencing pain again. And so I'm curious with the people that you see and maybe your experience, Kent, is, you know, once the pain is, quote, resolved, is it resolved forever? Do you have to do more management again and again to keep it that way? Or, or what is the process? As Kent was saying before, chronic pain can be a window into understanding who we are and how our brains work and how our bodies work. The message that we give to people is the problem is that they're human and the solution is that they're human. And so we're always going to have a brain and body. We're always going to have the danger alarm mechanism in our brain that will alert us, that will message us if the brain sees us or perceives us to be in danger. Again, from something in our lives, uh, emotions, uh, potential injury, harm, etc. And so we always have the capacity to go back to some kind of symptom. Our brain will always have the capacity to make us feel anxious or depressed or fatigued or can't sleep. And it happens to everybody. And that's normal. It's our job to use our brain as human beings, to use our thinking brain, to step back and make these links and understand what, our, what the message is, what our brain is saying to us so that we can use the symptoms 
is a springboard to healing. And so some people, uh, you know, I mean, I, I get pain on a not frequent basis, but occasionally. And most of the time it's my brain and I learn something from it or I try to learn something from it. And it's just part of how we are as human beings. So we, we don't want people to think like, I've got to get rid of this pain and I've got to get rid of it forever. Well, that's not, that's not really reality. First of all, if you say you've got to get rid of this pain, then you're putting pressure on yourself and creating more fear. So we want people to step back and say, it's okay, I'm fine. It'll go away in its own time and it's temporary and, and then it will. And then I do, we don't want them to say, I ho and it'll never come back. Well, that's probably not the case. <laughs> unless, you're, unless you're dead or you're, or you're not human anymore. Yeah, thank you. Kent, do you have any insight? Yeah, I, well, I, it's funny. I'm prone to that kind of thinking, you know, especially when I first started off in therapy. I, I would be like, well, I'm just going to like fix all my problems and then I'll never feel bad again. You know, I, I'm like prone to that kind of black and white thinking and yeah, you as you I, I do think that over time, something that shifted in me going through a process of processing emotions and stuff is that over time, I would get when I would have like a little flare up of pain, I would say I've never had a problem with chronic pain since 2004. But I've had pain emerge for like a day or two, which I knew wasn't just like, oh, I didn't I'm a little dehydrated, I got a headache. It wasn't that kind of pain. It was like I had a conflict. And then I had a headache and it was because of the conflict. And I felt like over time I got better. For me, it's, it's anger. It's always like I, I'm angry at somebody, but instead of knowing I'm angry, I would get a headache or I would get, you know, some kind of pain and or neck pain. That was another big one. And so like the sooner I could realize, oh, I'm angry and here's how I could voice this anger to this person. Here's how I could trust expressing anger, which is very scary to me like the sooner I would get a handle on the pain. And sometimes I would just, I started to not get pain. I would just be like, oh, I'm angry and I should talk to them, you know? <laughs> but that took me like multiple years after recovering from chronic pain to, I don't know, you like getting wiser, getting a little bit wiser about your own anger and how it manifests in your body. And so it's actually, I, anyway, and it really convinced me, that whole process really convinced me like that anger is this important sort of breadcrumb to follow back you know, into your conflicts, your relationships, and whatever kinds of symptoms that are showing up, and just asking yourself, like, you know, what was going on shortly before I had a pain feeling or I got overwhelmed. Yeah, Howard. <laughs> have you have you tried boxing? <laughs> <laughs> it's it great. <laughs> it's fantastic. I'm telling you, it's really helped with anger and resentment. Just like so cathartic. <laughs> But do you picture the person you're angry at when you're boxing? That's yeah. the yes, I do. Okay. <laughs> I might even say things. It was funny. I just got back to boxing for like the first time in a year after the pandemic. And my boxing teacher was like, oh, Melanie's back getting her anger out. I love to see it. <laughs> I was like, yeah, it's just, you know, we all have our emotions pent up. And I just want to acknowledge this. I think like, you know, anger is more quote, acceptable for men, but not as acceptable for yeah. women. And so I think women dealing with anger and resentment, like don't necessarily have a healthy outlet for that. And so for me to find boxing was like, oh, this feels like a healthy outlet where I don't have to, you know, 
go off the rails, so to speak, or, you know, deal with it in in an unhealthy way, like with alcohol or drugs or anything. It's a, it's a healthy way of getting my body moving, getting the emotion, the energy in motion out and, you know, hopefully getting some of that out of my system. So yeah, definitely check that out. (laughs) And, uh, you know, people don't necessarily, and oftentimes it's not a good idea to confront people and, and it's never a good idea to be violent. And, and so what we teach people is to get out the anger in a safe and healthy way, to acknowledge it, recognize it, honor it, express it in safe and healthy ways, like with boxing or with journaling about it or with going in a room and, and yelling and screaming or imagining even yelling at somebody or doing harm to somebody. These are all actually healthy ways because you're honoring that anger, but then you're letting it go and moving through that anger to other feelings. Maybe there's sadness about hurt and moving through sadness into compassion and caring. And then when you get to compassion and caring, then you can go back to the situation and you can deal with the person, hopefully in a a civil way and maybe an assertive way, but also in a caring way. Uh, And when you do that, it's really a, a great recipe for handling emotions and not not having them be negative, uh, but not, 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 you know, putting them out in the world in violence and not holding them in to harm yourself, but having a third path. Yes. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's so important because we definitely don't need any more violence in the world, but we also need a healthy, safe space to process these emotions that are completely valid and also normal. Um, My last question for you guys, kind of everything based on what we just talked about for people that have suffered from chronic pain, from trauma, from anxiety, what are ways that people can find safety in their own bodies? I think we want people to investigate, investigate the science, read about it. There's a set of resources on thismighthurtfilm.com. There's resources on my website, unlearnyourpain.com. We have a nonprofit called the PPD Association. Org. And all those have links to other, other websites and other programs that people can investigate and read about and research and make up their own mind to see, is this something that applies to you or not? And nobody wants to force anything on anybody. Nobody's invalidating anybody. No one's being judgmental about anybody. This is all about, it's all about science. It's all about healing. And it's all about compassion. And when Viewed from that point of view, I think a lot of people will begin to see a path for themselves. And as Kent was saying before, they'll begin to see a path where maybe they find that they can free themselves of fear. Maybe they find they can begin to do more rather than less. Maybe they can spend more time just living, loving, and laughing as part of their healing And maybe they need to seek therapy and maybe they need to do emotional expression work. Maybe they need to do some journaling. So there's a whole range of things out there, but the key is to make up your mind for yourself and begin to be your own, what do they call it? Your own change agent. Yeah. (laughs) To see that you can have, you can do something and have control over your life. And it's just, it's just not a passive way to go. A lot of, I have a friend who's who's a doctor who says that, you know, People often with chronic pain will say, well, I'll do anything to get rid of this pain. But sometimes they'll mean I'll let you do anything to me to get rid of this pain. And what 
we're advocating is hard because it's asking people to do for themselves. And ultimately it's so satisfying and so gratifying, but um, it does take courage. Yeah, I was, I was gonna add, um, you know, since this is a podcast about people who are sometimes dealing with money issues, so we have a few different ways that if you're intrigued to see the film and the most affordable way to see the film is to come to a screening. So we're doing screenings all around the globe for the next year or two. And you can join for donate what you can. So for the price of a cup of coffee, you can see the film and there'll be a Q&A and a chance actually to meet with other people afterwards on a Zoom call if you wish to connect with others. And also, if there's someone who's absolutely desperate, and we have a limited number of free copies of the film. So there's an email on our website, thismighthurtfilm.com. Just email us um, if you really want to see it, and we'll make sure that you, that you can get a copy. We do have to charge for it in general because um, we have our own money issues. We have to make money to pay a staff that's distributing this film. We're not backed by Netflix or anything like that. And we're slowly trying to pay off the debt we accumulated over the seven years we spent making the movie. Um, so, but yeah, I just wanted to add that. Yes, thank you so much for sharing. And I definitely recommend everybody listening to check out the film. It was such a wonderful insight into the mind-body connection and also just a wonderful thing to see a new door opening to treating chronic pain. And so thank you so much for this conversation. It's been so wonderful to chat with you guys today. Where can people find you? Well, uh, I haven't had a problem in people finding me. <laughs> <laughs> that, has not, that has not been a problem. <laughs> but I do have a website, unlearnyourpain.com. I'm available through that. And there's a lot of resources there and links to lectures we've done, animation videos, trainings that we're doing for professionals and um so yeah there's a there's a lot of stuff out there if people begin to look for themselves yeah the people can find our film on thismighthurtfilm.com and our email is on the site you can reach me at tmhfilm at gmail.com um, we also have a phone number <laughs> feel free to call us if you want to <laughs> we're especially hoping that people who are part of organizations will want to host screenings. That's why we have a phone number, especially. Um, so if there's any doctors or therapists listening, we're going to make the film available for CME credits and CE credits, and also to be screened for your different medical or therapy associations. So we're doing a grassroots screening campaign for the next couple of years, and we're really inviting people to join with us and get these ideas out to people who need them. Oh, perfect. Thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise today. Thank you. It was really nice talking to you, Melanie. Thanks, Melanie. It was great. Thank you so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Want more content and support? Sign up for the Mental Hump newsletter and get our free Mental Health and Money Inventory Worksheet. You can sign up at mentalhealthandwealth.com and also check out our other blog posts and podcast episodes. Also, we host a Mental Health and Wealth Hangout every other Thursday over Zoom at 5 p.m. Pacific to chat about all things money and mental health. The best part, it is free. If you'd like to support the podcast, it would mean so much to me if you left a review. And you can also support me at ko-fi.com forward slash Melanie Lockhart. And lastly, I want to remind you to do something for yourself to take care of your mental health and wealth.